0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli here today with Yona Weiss, Business Director for Madison Specs and Cost segregation Expert, to discuss how to use cost segregation studies to reduce your tax liability and more. Before we jump right into today's episode, I want to remind you about our virtual, oh, not going to remind you about our virtual workshops today, but if you haven't checked one out, you definitely want to, because we've already helped save multiple real estate investors a few thousand dollars just by attending the virtual workshop. Instead, today, I want to let you know that we have other content available outside of our podcast. If you head on over to therealestatecpa.com, you'll find our blog. That's a ton of posts on some very useful accounting and tax tips. In fact, one of those posts is a step-by-step walkthrough on how to fill out Schedule E, which is the area of your tax returns where you report your real estate investments. So if you're going to be doing your own tax returns this year, that's definitely a guide you'll want to check out. Again, you can find that at therealestatecpa.com. We also want to let you know that we do have a YouTube channel. You can find it by going to YouTube and searching for The Real Estate CPA, and we should be one of the first options that pops up. And if you haven't already subscribed, you definitely want to do that because we'll be releasing a ton of real estate tax and accounting content over the next year and something you won't want to miss. And without further ado, we'll jump right into today's episode. So, Yonah, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Could you share with our audience a little bit about your background and how you got started in the cost irrigation space?
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks. First of all, thanks, Thomas and, and Brandon. I'm a big fan. And uh, obviously, you know. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. A little bit about my background. I actually have a background in teaching, uh, which I spent about close to 20 years in uh, teaching at various different levels, from all the way from you know preschool all the way up to collegiate level. So really everything in between. And about a few years ago, it's about three, four years ago, I started getting involved in real estate. And I wanted to learn everything there was to know about real estate. So I got my broker's license. I was doing commercial mortgage brokering as well on the side, working for a private investment firm and decided to do a few you know, deals myself with a partner, doing some fix and flips up in New Jersey and really got my love for real estate and everything involved in it. And I love learning. So when it comes to learning new things, I want to learn everything about it and I really got involved with cost segregation specifically more with the company that I'm working for, which is Madison Commercial Real Estate. One of of the branches is Madison Specs, which stands for Specialized Property Engineering Cost Segregation. It's the acronym SPECS, right? So it also means uh, building plans. But they're one of the largest cost segregation firms in the nation, uh, having done over 13,000 studies in all 50 states. And... I got involved with them. They're an amazing company, amazing people, and I just really wanted to learn more about the industry and came on board with some of the experts in the field literally and just, you know, soaked up everything they had to offer and you know, here I am today still involved in doing a lot of podcasts, getting a lot of information, you know, out there for the world who does not know about this awesome tax benefit and really baffles me every day. How many people just have never heard of it? They don't know what it is.
0: So, for the listeners who don't know what cost segregation is, <laughs> could you give, could you give them a, a quick overview of what cost segregation actually is and why someone would want to consider using one?
2: Sure. So, background first of all, weird name, cost segregation. The IRS gave this. I think you know it has to do with allocating a property into different depreciation lifespans. So, we really have to take a step back. Everyone who invests in real estate gets a deduction called depreciation on your taxes, right? Everyone knows that. If you have a property, and if you don't, your accountant for sure does. They take a deduction and it's really just a line deduction of the value of the property when it was purchased minus the land value. And then you split that up into either 39 years for commercial property or 27 and a half years for residential multifamily property. That's what depreciation is. So you take a value, split it up into all these years, Get that amount deducted each year. And it's based on the fact that property goes down in value from the day that you buy it until, you know, onwards, just like when you buy a car, you drive it off the lot, it goes down in value. So, when you buy a property, the day you place it in service, and already the value goes down, even though intrinsically the value may not go down at all. It's actually appreciating and the value of the property may actually be going up. But for tax purposes, the IRS allows you to take a deduction based on that original value it was purchased for and um, use those deductions every year. So cost segregation is a little more technical version of splitting up the property and everything that's in the property into different depreciation lives. Instead of that straight line, instead of that 27 and a half or 39 years, you can actually break it down into much more details um, and faster depreciation lives. So conservation allows you to take what's called accelerated depreciation, getting some of the property value in a faster rate, meaning in the first year, first five years, seven years, 15 years, et cetera, and getting a lot of depreciation early on uh, increases the cash flow. It's uh, a great tax deduction to keep you in check so you don't have to pay taxes.
0: So basically cost segregation, just to recap, it allows you to break down the various components of your property into shorter class lives, which allows for a larger depreciation deduction, um, more cash flow, and uh, you pay less taxes, at least in the front end. Um, Could you give us a quick walkthrough of the cost segregation process and how it actually works, how someone would actually go through and actually have one of these cost segregation studies performed?
2: Sure, so the first and foremost Thing is to determine with your accountant if it's beneficial for your situation. Um, it's not always beneficial for everyone. Uh, if you don't have income, so having extra deductions is not really going to do anyone any benefit. However, real estate, you know, hopefully you're having a lot of income, making a lot of money, and you want to cut that tax down. So the first step would be after contacting your accountant is contacting a firm like ours, a constigation firm which has engineers that specialize in this service and the reason why you need an engineer the irs actually highly recommends does not require an engineer to do this study but highly recommends it because the allocations of the property um when we're talking about different things within the building that have a faster depreciation life so we're talking about things like personal property which would include uh furniture appliances but things that may not be determined right away as five-year property, meaning stuff that depreciates faster, like carpeting or wall coverings or outlets and you know light fixtures and things like that, you may not know is not part of the building. So you need an engineer who can come and determine the actual value according to the internal revenue code. So the first step, get an engineer firm engaged. Uh, most of the firms like ours will provide an upfront a feasibility analysis or an estimate to give you a picture of what our projections would be if you would do a full study, what kind of tax benefits you can expect. And then uh, the engineer comes down, does a site visit, has to actually see the property, take all the value, the detail of everything in the property and outside. And with those findings, he can create a study based on the, the guide that the IRS puts out of how to actually prepare this kind of study.
1: So just to recap. Yeah. First, the CPA, you would have a conversation with your CPA and the client and the CPA would decide whether or not to pursue a cost segregation study. Then the client would contact a cost segregation firm and that firm would provide an upfront analysis or estimate of what the cost segregation study might yield. Then assuming that we, we move forward, um, we move into a the engineers either flying out or is there like a virtual approach that the engineer can use or they always have to fly out? and and walk uh, the property?
2: It's highly recommended that the IRS likes it, that the engineer actually sees the property. So the, the virtual approach is not really the way to go.
1: So I think it's important here to tell our listeners that what we're really talking about is risk reduction, right? right. You could do it virtually. It doesn't mean that it's going to hold up in the event of an audit. So the recommendation is that you have the engineer fly out to the property, do the walkthrough and get the information they need to actually perform the, the study. Then they 100%. give you the study and then the CPA goes and keys that into the tax return at the end of the year. Um, let, let me ask you this. Is, sure. is, is there a timing aspect to cost segregation studies? Like, should I do it at the very beginning? Uh, should I do it four to five years into the property? What if I, what if I've held the pro I and mean, there's gonna be a lot of questions, sorry. <laughs> what if I've held the property for 10 years or what if I'm about to sell the property? Can you walk us through some of those those scenarios? Sure. So a lot of
2: questions, great questions, and I'll try to walk through uh, you know the most important ones first, and then uh, kind of hopefully cover everything. So actually, I want to even before I answer that, I want to take one step back, if we can, because because I mentioned that the process, the first step is to consult with your CPA and see if it's a good idea. Now, what happens if your CPA has no idea what cost aggregation is? or doesn't know that it's a benefit. Obviously, I'm not talking about you guys, right? But there are tremendous amount of CPAs out there that really don't know what this is and are not, they may not be real estate savvy. That may not be their main practice. And a, a client may have the CPA because it was you know inherited. His father had the same CPA or you know he had a business and he was a great business accountant, but then he decided to go invest in real estate. And the accountant really doesn't, uh, know all the ins and outs of real estate strategy and taxes. So again, if your CPA doesn't know about, it or doesn't really have an opinion on the matter, um,
1: it's time, so, it's time to find a real estate <laughs> <CPA, right? laughs>
2: so reach out to these guys. That's uh, your next step.
1: You know, it's right. funny. I, I was going to ask you that uh, before we moved on, like what happens if your CPA doesn't know, but then I was like, well, I don't even know what the advice would be in that situation. like, Or what if the client just doesn't even know? I, we, we see tons of clients that sure. come to us and it's like, whoa, you should have done a cost tag. Do you know what a cost tag is? And they're like, no. It's not, yeah, well, okay. this is like an eight year old asset that you should have done a cost tag study in year one, man. Um, yeah, so, but anyway, I avoided it because I was like, I don't know where we're going to go with that <laughs> or how we even give advice there. So that's good that you touched on it. <laughs>
2: All right. Well, you know, the point is that everyone needs to take their own situation in their own hands. You know, you can't rely on someone else to be looking out for your best interests um, when it may not align with their expertise. Right, right. Uh, Okay, so now some great questions, right? So when is the best time to do a cost segregation? Uh, Best time, most of the case, is in the first year, as soon as the property is placed in service, and especially now with the new tax reform, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, with bonus depreciation, which will kind of segue into that afterwards, where you can get, more deductions as long as you do it in the first year, um, you can get bonus depreciation. However, if you did not do a cost segregation in the first year, you can retroactively get those benefits anytime in the past. And so, how far back is it actually beneficial to do it retroactively? Really depends on the size and the you know makeup of the property. So, for example, we talked about five-year assets, right? Property that. Depreciates over five years, and that's going to be the bulk of the benefit Uh, in most properties. Is going to be the five-year assets getting the most deductions in the first five, six years of ownership. And so, if you think about it, after six years has passed, so those five-year properties have fully depreciated, right? And there's not going to be much benefit more to now go and do the costing to get that depreciation after six years has passed. There is still something there, and it will come in the all in the first year. Right when you do it retroactively, it's all going to come a big chunk in the first year. However, um, like I said, depending on the type of property and the size of property, there still may be a tremendous amount of fifteen-year assets which depreciate over fifteen years and can still be beneficial. For example, we had a huge shopping center, right? That was um, you know the guy bought ten years ago and he never knew about cost segregation, didn't do it, and it happened to be you know huge parking lots and huge landscaping. And the property itself was bought for, you know, about $10, $12 million. So there was significant benefit for him to do the concentration even after 10 years, because he got in the first year, a huge deduction from all the 15-year assets and all the five-year that was left over that he could just, you know, accelerate that and get a big chunk in the first year. However, like a small property, a million-dollar asset or something like that, it really doesn't make sense after, after five years to do it. Okay. Um,
1: what about if I'm going to sell a property? Right.
2: So that was the next uh, next point. I think yeah. If you're going to sell, it, so maybe we should touch upon depreciation recapture tax. <laughs> dun dun dun! Like that's. <laughs> I actually just wrote an article last week about uh, it's appearing in a publication in New York, a business journal about the most. I think a title the most dreaded of all taxes or something. Depreciation recapture, right? And it is because. It means that when you, even though the IRS is great and lets you get all these deductions and gets the cost segregation gets your income tax, literally can be down to zero uh, potentially with all these deductions in the early years. Now, when you go ahead and sell the property, they still want to take something from it. So as long as you're selling for a gain and you're not doing a 1031 exchange, which further defers that depreciation recapture, there's something called depreciation recapture tax, which means the IRS will tax the amount of depreciation you took over the course of ownership of the property. So to take a whole bunch of depreciation upfront in that year, that tax year, may be a good idea if you need those extra deductions. But you have to realize the next year, you're just gonna be taxed on that extra amount that you took. Uh, in your overall picture, like you know, that's something to discuss with your CPA and your tax strategist if it makes sense.
1: Interesting. So going back to what you were saying a little bit ago about just the timing aspect, if I did a cost segregation study in year one, then by year six, all of my five-year personal property would be fully depreciated. But let's assume that I didn't do the cost seg study. So I've been depreciating for the first five years over a 27 right. and a half year straight line method, or 39 right. for commercial. But in year six, all of a sudden, for whatever reason, I decided to do a cost segregation study. Can I accelerate the missed depreciation on that first five-year property that should now be fully depreciated? So in year six, am I looking at a massive write-off?
2: Uh, yes and no. And there really is a difference of opinion on this, but you, you are allowed to accelerate the depreciation because you're cha- like you said, you're changing the way that you depreciated the property until now all those five-year assets, you've depreciated over 27 years. So essentially, you've only taken five out of 27 of those assets, right? So the rest of the 22 years left in this asset, you can accelerate that amount of it. But again, it's all going to come in the first year. And there may only be minimal amount of that that's left. And that's why I said there is a difference of opinion because maybe there's not value placed on those assets anymore because they've theoretically been depreciated, um, over the five years.
1: So if I do this, if I do the cost segregation in, in year six, it's not just that I can accelerate the 22 and a half or whatever is remaining over. I can't accelerate that immediately because there may not actually be any real value left on the assets. Like when I do the cost segregation study, the asset might actually just be zero or close to zero. Right. Is that that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay.
2: Yeah, there's different, like I said, there are differences of opinions in that. So depending on, you know, the strategy that you want to take on that, there's definitely room to to do both.
1: Very cool. Okay. So how how much of the property in just kind of high level guidelines, just so our listeners can understand here, how much of the property are we generally able to pull out and allocate to five, seven or 15 year property?
2: So it depends on the type of property, but you know, it ranges anywhere between 10% of the value Anywhere until you know forty or forty or fifty percent of the value of the property, and again, it really depends on the type of property. If you think about it, things like an assisted living facility is a great example of something that has tons of five-year property. Right? It's filled with beds and equipment and different appliances and different uh, electronic, you know, wiring that helps you know with all the facility in every single room. And it's different. So there's a lot of value placed in all those five-year assets that can be appreciated. Usually we'll get somewhere, you know, close to 20% or even 25% of the value of the property is placed in that, that stuff. Whereas something like a warehouse, right, which has very little inside of it, right, may only have like about 5% or so of the value of the property is placed into five-year assets. Mm -hmm. Um, And another thing I love to give an example of a golf course, is another example of something that has a huge amount of 15 year property, right? Which we talk about land improvements, like landscaping, uh, pavement, and even the sand dunes, things like that, that's all, it's not just land, it's actually land improvements. It's like almost all 15 year property. So golf course can actually be like 80% of the value of the property can actually be 15 year property.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, you're right. You can you can totally cost like a golf course because it's all land improvements, pretty much. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, but we always <laughs> learn something on these podcasts. Um, mm-hmm. Most of our listeners either invest in multifamily syndicates or they are the general partners in multifamily syndicates. So, what what are, what are we looking at in terms of multifamily properties?
2: Yeah, typically it's about it's about between twenty and thirty percent is usually uh, the number, and it varies on the type of property. Like I said, how much land improvements there are um, on the property. Like if it's a city apartment. Complex, there's very little 15 year property. If it's garden style apartments, you know, there's usually a large amount of 15 year property. But the five year property, multifamily, it kind of fluctuates between about I'd 15 and 20,
1: 25%. Oh, very cool. Yeah. How do you guys allocate to land? Because that's always a hot topic of discussion um, uh, for, for my firm, both internally with with our clients, right. with the Cossack guys. Sometimes the cost tech guys are like, man, you guys allocate aggressively. And then other times they're like, you guys allocate way too conservatively. So we use the uh, the property tax cards. And then if the property tax cards are way too conservative, then we'll go with appraisals or, or insurance reports. But we, I, I'd just be really curious to know like, what you guys do to value land aggressively and substantiate it.
2: So we actually try to push that off onto the accountants. <laughs>
1: um. There it is. <laughs>
2: Um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, usually when we quote the property, our estimates, uh, generally speaking, unless we know of, uh, beforehand the information, we'll just quote it at 15%, one five, because that's, we found like a, a, a national average, um, in most properties. And you know, that some people might think that's a little bit aggressive, but a lot of people go with that. And a lot of accounts will go with that if the property assessor, uh, you know, has, you know, other opinions on that, so that may be the more conservative approach to just take what, what that is. And it is important to note something that, that comes up often when we're talking about doing a, what we call a look-back study or a retroactive study, um, once the property's already been depreciated, once you've got, filed that depreciation schedule, you've already allocated land. So even though you're going and reallocating all the five and 15year property, you can't practically speaking, you can't go ahead and change the land value. Right. It's not a good idea to do so. If you want to go ahead and change that, because the IRS may question that. We actually have had a case where one of our clients uh, challenged the. He wanted to. He wanted to amend his previous year's tax returns, and I think he actually did so. And he had basis on that because of the appraisal that he got. And actually, he he fought the municipality to get the property allocation. The property taxes lowered, and so the property allocation was then lowered. And so he wanted to go ahead and now input those new numbers at a lower property value on his tax returns previous years. And he did so. I don't know what the end of this story is, but I know that he did that.
1: That's really interesting. We, um, you know, we, we like to argue that the, especially when the property tax card shows a too high land value, at least based on what we see. Because we, we have clients in, in all 50 states, they're all over the place right. and we see all sorts of land values. Uh, We like to argue that the assessor, the property assessor for the city, county, whatever it is, they value that land differently than we would value it because they value it for a different utility than what we're going to use it for. So we like to talk about that. But then we ask the question, how do we substantiate that? Uh (laughs) And that's where we always get stuck. So. Uh, we, we were really excited to to ask you guys, how do you value land? Because I, I was hoping you were going to be like, well, there's this big secret land database out there that you guys <laughs> have access to. <laughs> That's what I was crossing my fingers for. But good. You guys are just in the same boat we are. That's good to yeah, know.
2: Yeah. I mean, there, there have been a lot of court cases, especially in places like California and stuff where the land value is like ridiculous, like 40, 50%, um, 60% even something that I've seen, you know, so there have been a lot of court cases on this and, you know, you can use whatever su- substantiation you want to, to be fine, you know, as long as you are confident that <laughs> that you can stand behind it.
0: Yeah, well, unfortunately, it looks like there's no definitive answer here. Uh, it's kind mm-hmm. of uh, a measure of different things. But uh, when it comes to you know the new tax law, I know you mentioned some things about 1031 exchanges before. Um, how uh, you know, They have since changed the definition of a 1031 exchange to only include, quote unquote, real property. Uh-huh. How do you see that Interacting with cost segregation studies now that you can't necessarily just roll over all the personal tangible property that may have been segregated out in the study, right? So this is
2: a hot topic, and there are a number of different opinions. One stance that we've taken, actually, we have in our firm, 1031 Exchange Company, is one of the branches of our company, Madison, and you know the head of that he came out with a pretty good reasoning and based it on saying that when we're looking just like in cost segregation there have been a number of court cases that have really defined what today we use segregation as what we define personal property which have basically defined what is person what is five-year personal property and so there originally personal property was thought of things that are literally movable okay so appliances something a couch you can pick up and move right furniture you can pick up and move whereas when we define five-year property in cost segregation, there are many, many, many things that are defined of that which wouldn't necessarily be considered tangible or personal property. And one example of that would be carpeting, which is a very um, five-year property that we use. So we like to define what the IRS deemed as 1031-able, let's say to use that word, for it's only real property. So we say that the, the real property that is actually the five-year property that is actually real property, or the 1245 property that is considered part of the real property, just allocated for consideration purposes, that's not considered the real property, the personal property that can no longer be 1031. So there is kind of a definitive definition that's kind of redundant, but there's a <laughs> there's a definition between the broad category of 1245 property and then what's considered tangible movable property.
1: Interesting. So we we've spoken with a few of these 1031 guys that run some rather large 1031 shops. Mm -hmm. And a few of them take the the opposite stance that the personal property is not going to be included in 1031 exchanges. So if you're doing a cost segregation study for somebody or or if you do a cost segregation study for somebody Mm -hmm. and they want to go and do a 1031 exchange, do you guys have resources that you're sharing with those 1031 companies to help get them to buy into your to your side or or what, what are you kind of seeing there in the market in terms of the general understanding of whether or not personal property is included or excluded in 1031 exchange? Right. So
2: we're, you know, really giving that guidance that, like I described that, the, the, you know, the property, the amount of it, and really you can decide, really we, we give it up to them to decide what they want to do essentially, but there is definitely room and arguments uh, to make that will allow more of the, more of the five-year property to be, included in the the building amount that the real property that is 1031 exchange that being said there's actually another point which is that and i think we discussed this at one point at least uh, in a forum or some kind that that after a number of years have passed in owning the property so the five-year property is actually depreciated has actually gone down in value and on the se- sale of the property you can actually allocate a lesser value to the five-year property in which case uh, more of the value of the property at large would then be rested on the, the, prop- the real property itself.
1: Right, and, and so to kind of expand on that, what we're saying is that if we sell in year six, then theoretically we don't have any personal property or, or the personal property has very little value because it's right. been fully depreciated over that five years. So mm-hmm. therefore, even if we can't 1031 personal property, it's not that big of a deal because there's very little value left. Very interesting point. Another point that I'm going to make just before we we move on is that mm-hmm. uh, it also matters. Well, what I understand is that at a state level, it can also matter too, depending on how the state <coughs> tangible property versus personal right. property versus fixed assets, those types of things. So Definitely check all that out. And for any of our listeners that are listening and and you're like, man, that sounds super confusing, (laughs) it is. And I think that you should just understand that any tax position that you take is going to carry risk. But make sure that you interview a couple of these companies, get the different opinions, maybe even ask to compensate a CPA or somebody, some third party, for an opinion letter on something like this so that you can have the substantiation you need if this ever were to be escalated into some sort of IRS audit. But uh, Jonas, Jonas company, Madison Specs, they're a pretty large and respected company. So I think that you'd be fine with um, with that form of an approach there, but that that's really cool. So a question that I have for you is we have the business interest limitations, and this is for the bigger properties or for the syndications, right? So any syndication out there is pretty much going to be subject to these interest limitations, as long as they are sharing over 35% of their losses with limited partners. So the business interest limitations are going to force these syndications to make a decision. And the decision is, do I not elect out of the business interest limitations? So real property owners can elect out of the business interest limitations. Um, if I don't elect out of the business interest limitations, I can do a cost study. I can take hundred percent bonus depreciation I'm square. The only problem is that now I'm, I'm limited in the amount of interest I can take. And that's just based on my operating income Mm -hmm. or the other option is I can elect to not be subject to the business interest limitations. But if I do that, I have to depreciate over the ADS. It's a different depreciation system. Right. Um, not as advantageous, and I cannot take 100% bonus depreciation. Right. So are there any sort of strategies related to cost segregation study and the business interest limitations, any sort of overlap there that you're seeing that maybe you're advising clients on?
2: It's um, a really great question. There is, first of all, let me just clarify, you isn't the, the business limitation is only for a company that is producing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, over $20 million?
1: Uh, it's twenty. Yeah, I think it's twenty five. Twenty five. Uh, but the, the catch all is that if you are running a tax shelter, and a tax shelter is now defined as any entity where more than thirty five percent of the losses are shared with limited partners, so basically all of the syndications out there that buy oh. these big apartment buildings. If you're a tax shelter, you're you are automatically subject to these business interest limitations. And all of this is subject to change for all of our listeners. Um, yeah. And this show may even come out after this guidance is released to just understand that it is subject to change. That's what we know right now. Uh, So the real question is, in year one, do Mm -hmm. I do a cost segregation study and not elect out of the business interest limitations if I'm a syndication? And if I do that, then do I elect out of the business interest limitations in year two and switch everything over to ADS? Is there any sort of recapture there? Or do I just never elect out of the business interest limitations I, I didn't know if you guys had any guidance on that or if you guys had advised anybody uh, on kind of like a, the timing aspect of the crossover between those two different sure. instruments. Sure.
2: We have, we definitely have uh, done some guidance on this. We are still waiting for the guidance from the IRS, obviously. But in every concentration study that we prepare, we will go ahead and prepare multiple ways to depreciate. So we'll prepare the ADS. Ahead of time, and we'll prepare you know the bonus for if they want to elect that, if they can elect that fifty percent or one hundred percent bonus, um, and as well as the you know two hundred percent double declining balance and one fifty balance. We'll we'll prepare all of the different options, and then it's really up to you know the individual or the company to then decide with their which makes the most sense for them, and then take those numbers and, and plug it in. In terms of actual guidance in this. Personally, I haven't been on the, uh, the guidance side. We definitely have uh, CPAs in our firm and I'm not a CPA just for clarification, but our tax advisors uh, are, you know, 20, 30 years uh, you know, certified public accountants that have that and definitely do more of the, the guidance on that. So if I have more guidance on that, I'll follow up with you specific to that question.
1: Yeah, we would love that. And, um, if we do get more guidance and, and especially if you guys follow up with us, uh, we will add that guidance to these show notes and we'll probably even send out like an email blast whenever that comes out. But that is one big thing that we are awaiting guidance on right. Right, is whether or not we should do a caustic study in year one, and then elect out of the business interest limitations in year two, or just, we just do a cost segregation study and don't elect out of the business interest limitations. So definitely some things that we're going to have to juggle there with the, the tax code. Right.
0: So, you know, before we, uh, we wrap up here, uh, what would be your favorite piece of tech that you're currently using in your business today?
2: Ooh, that's a good one. Um, you know, on the, on the business side of thing, I mean, you know, I'm not so technically advanced personally. Um, so I'm, you know, just even this video conferencing for me, that's, that's, that's something which allows me because a lot of our clients are nationally, you know, based. And so I know you guys, you guys as well, uh, you know, have a virtual firm and you have, you know, the accountants in different locations as well as the clients in all different locations in the case. So this really allows us to have uh, much more open communication with everyone, video conferencing.
0: Uh, I love that. Um, what else? You know what? The video conferencing is huge. And, and, and you know, we got to say that, you know, I have to say that I agree. And I think Brandon would agree too, that the video conferencing really does allow you to develop a better relationships with people who you might not be able to meet face-to-face and, you know, yeah. in a professional setting that can be key to keeping your business moving forward and, and keeping your clients happy.
1: Yeah. It revolutionizes the services industry, right? Like it allows us I mean, Thomas is in New York City. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, right? We're having this podcast right now. We're all in different locations. but We can all see each other. And it just allows us to work with clients, vendors, uh, partners, and a lot of different ways that you couldn't have done it in the past. So
0: I'm, I'm on board with that. Okay. Well, Yona, um, we thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today and share, share some of this knowledge with our listeners. If they wanted to contact you, what would be the best way to do so?
2: I'm very active on on LinkedIn and on bigger pockets. Those are two places where I'm uh, pretty daily hosting and engaging with people. Uh, great forums, both of them if you use them right and use them for what they're good for. and otherwise, you know you can email me directly, maybe put in the show notes, my name Y Weiss, Yola Weiss, Y Weiss at Madisonspec. Um, and you know let's see happy to answer any other questions.
0: All right, awesome. So we're we'll going to go ahead and drop that information in the show notes below for our listeners. Again, that's Yona Weiss. You can find him on LinkedIn, BiggerPockets, and on massinspecs.com. So thanks again and appreciate your time.
2: And I appreciate you guys for having me. That's where appreciation and depreciation meet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Have a good one, Yona. Thanks, Renny. Thanks for listening to today's show.